tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Grab your pitchfork, light your torch, and get ready for inciting a riot. Conventional thinking has been warned, because we're going to gather, and we're going to march, and we're going to blow its f***ing house down. Hello, rioters, and welcome back to Inciting a Riot, the podcast. I would be your left-wing, dirt-worshipping host, Firelight. Travel back with me for a moment to the late 90s and early 2000s. For those of you that can't travel back with me in your mind to your own memories of the 90s and early 2000s, please stop making me feel old. Ellen DeGeneres had just lost her acting career because she'd come out as a lesbian but had yet to find success as a talk show host. Will and Grace was just poking its head on television to see if American audiences might find their softened sitcom version of queerness palatable. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was in full effect, and the idea of marriage equality was laughable. Literally, it was used as the punchline of innumerable jokes in television and film and comedy sketches. It was a time when queer kids like me didn't get to see themselves reflected authentically on screen, so we looked for representation elsewhere, encoded characterizations and subtext, and, if you had cable, the occasional reality television contestant. When queer characters were portrayed at all, they were either sexless comedy fairies whose entire existence seemed to center around telling the protagonist how amazing she looked, or we were the tragic victim of a hate crime or dying of AIDS. And then there was Queer as Folk. Queer as Folk, the American adaptation, ran from December 3rd, 2000 until August 7th, 2005, It had five seasons and centered on a group of queer friends and their loved ones. What set the show apart from other shows like it of the era was that the people on this show had sex. No, they... Parents, if you have small children, cover their ears. They fucked. They were not the sexless side characters whose genitals were removed in order to become more palatable to middle America. They were empowered, fully realized characters who lived in a world that looked far more like the one I lived in. They were funny, mean, smart, talented, rude, self-sabotaging, fiercely protective, and a whole gamut of human experience and emotion I had never seen on television or film before. In short, they were the first time I'd ever seen myself reflected on screen. I didn't always agree with their actions, but that was the point. They were human, flawed like the rest of us. Now, sure, as the years have gone by, plenty of criticism has been leveled at Queer as Folk. It centered cisgender, normatively attractive white characters who, more or less, lived in a pretty privileged world. But for the time, 
this was a revolutionary show, and in many ways, it still is. I didn't actually get to watch Queer as Folk during its original run. Like I said to you all before, I'm from a really small town. Cable was not a thing in my house. We had rabbit ear antennas, and we were gonna like it for my entire childhood up to and past my high school graduation. And even if we had cable, sneaking in to watch Queer as Folk was never going to be a thing. It wasn't until I began my freshman year of college in 2004 that I was able to finally watch the show. And I got to meet Emmett Honeycutt. Like me, he'd also grown up the ostentatiously gay kid in a rural, small southern town. Like me, he couldn't hide his queerness if he tried. Like me, he showed a colorful exterior to the world and hid in a nest of softness and comfort shows and coping mechanisms at home. He was portrayed by the actor Peter Page, an out-gay actor who went on to have roles in Will and Grace, Grey's Anatomy, and a long list of other TV and film roles before stepping behind the camera to write, produce, and direct TV shows like The Fosters, Good Trouble, Station 19, and the film The Thing About Harry. Peter has been an idol of mine for nearly 20 years, and through luck and a bit of magic, (laughs) he is my guest today. I know I couldn't believe it either. We discuss the legacy of his career, what it takes to make queer-centric stories in today's Hollywood landscape, casting cisgender heterosexual actors in queer roles, and the future of the LGBTQ plus community on and off screen. So, without any further ado, and I cannot believe I get to say this, please enjoy this interview with Peter Page. Peter Page, thank you so much for being here at Inciting a Riot. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I am so honored to get to talk to you. Um, You are uh, one of those people that has been a part of my life without you knowing it, of course, (laughs) uh, for decades now. Um, So I've I've gotten to follow your career for a really long time and I'm so excited to sort of celebrate that career with you. Um, Thank you. You you broke out in the show Queer as Folk, which folks my age (laughs) at this point know as this massively groundbreaking show uh, that came out in 1999, uh, a year after Will and Grace and two years, most notably after uh, Ellen DeGeneres famously came out. So that was a... I actually think we went on the air in 2000 for the record. Oh, you did? Okay. I'm sorry. IMDb lied to me. I was... out in 99 is what I think happened. The ah, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. But you were pretty close to that, that era of uh, it, it's, it's sort of dangerous to make queer films, queer cinema, generally speaking. Yeah. I wasn't sort of close to that. I was absolutely <laughs> a part of that. I mean, when I came out um, early on, Randy Harrison and I both kind of, you know, the publicist at, at Showtime came to us both as the show was launching and was like, listen, people are going to ask you about your sexuality. You don't have to answer. You don't have to say anything. We support you, whatever you want to do. And Randy and I looked at each other and we're like, we're going to be on this show and not, and like be evasive about our sexuality. No, no, we're not doing that. So, um, but when we came out, we were, I mean, and I mean this literally, we were a handful. There was Wilson Cruz oh, yeah. who was out. Um, Alec Mappa was out. And that was like it. <laughs> like that was it. There wasn't anybody else. We would go to the GLAAD Awards and I would be the most famous person in the room. <laughs> it's a completely different world now, you know, 20, 20 years later. So, um, uh, yeah, it was, it, them, them was different times. 
So what was it like being in in those different times, in that bubble of making this show? Did it feel like you were breaking ground? Did it feel dangerous and edgy or did it feel like a job? Sure. Yeah, no. I mean, I, you know, I was old enough. I was 30 when that show launched and I was old enough that... No. Um, yes. You were not. Wow. Oh my gosh. How did I miss that? Holy I crap. Was. Whatever you are... <laughs> I want whatever that is. Good jeans, man. You, you look about twelve yourself, so I don't think oh, you have anything to bless worry about. You. Um, I uh, I was through when that launch, and you know, so I had grown up with no no images of LGBT LGBTQIA people on in the media. None. They just didn't exist. You know, I, I was like watching Bewitched for the sort of coded <laughs> Uncle Arthur references, and you know, RuPaul sort of had just appeared on the scene and, and super you know, model of the world. Model of the world. And um I'm RuPaul had not just just appeared. RuPaul had been around for a while. But in terms of sort of like television, sure. you know. Um uh and so and I was by the way, like I was I got very, very, very close to playing Jack in Will and Grace. Um so I I knew I knew that it meant something. I knew it was important. I knew what it would have meant to me because I was just coming out of that phase of my life where I would mm-hmm. would have so um, welcomed, you know, media depictions that looked something like me or, or you know, mm-hmm. seemed something like me. Like I, I like I remember we used to turn on, we used to call each other and say, "Oh my God, Ricky Lake has gay people on her talk show." Like that, literally, the subject of the talk show was these people are gay and they're willing to say it. Like that was the whole hour was, you know, club kids being like, I'm gay, okay? And, you know, and, um, and, and I remember watching like the first Tales of the City, which was, you know, six hours or something. And, and all of us just like huddled in an apartment, like watching on, on, on PBS, just like, oh my God, I can't believe there's like, there's there's gay sexuality being referenced much less depicted you know so um so i knew it was important i knew that we the only thing we couldn't do with that material was shy away from it like we we mm. had to go at it um i knew it had been a, been a big hit in the uk so um and i knew that we weren't shying away from it you know um my very very first day on set um i had just arrived they started i was there for a costume fitting and Randy and Gail like walked out in bathrobes, like their very first day of shooting, they were naked and having sex. And I was like, well, ain't nobody, ain't nobody backing away from this. So here we go. Um, so, you know, I, I was aware that, that it mattered and certainly excited. Oh, by the way, like Showtime prepared us for bomb threats the day the show launched. Well, like, I, I, mean, I have to imagine because up until, up until that time, Gay people on screen, queer people of all stripes on screen were pretty much relegated to, you know, a hairdresser or the disastrous sex worker who died in an alley of AIDS with 27 needles in their arms. And there weren't really any other depictions. We were either a cautionary tale or we were comedic backdrop. And you were right there on the cusp of us being something else, something human. Uh, Thanks. That was super important because Emmett, I mean, even the, even the creators, even Dan and Ron will tell you that Emmett was sort of conceived to be a wise cracking queen on the sidelines. Sure. Frankly, that was being done elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were wise cracking queens on the sidelines of a lot of things. Sure. And I was like, "Mm, we'll see about that. (laughs) Like I just, I wanted him to have depth and nuance. I went to my first costume fitting and it was all, it was like, I mean, 
she ended up not being the costume designer for the show for very long. But when we were doing the pilot, there was this woman, she was lovely, but she had done this kind of research from the outside. And mm. literally the, the sketches she had for my character were like me in like a floppy, a big like floppy hat and like a sarong. And I was like, um, I mean, sometimes, sure. <laughs> yes. But like, he also wears sweatpants. And yes. and that was always my bargain with the costume designers. I was like, I will wear anything you want to the nightclubs, to my jobs, to 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 parties. I will wear anything you want. But at but at home, I want him in t-shirts and sweats. Like yes. he's a he's just a human being who happens to be, you know, effeminate and uh, occasionally flamboyant and over the top. Um, so so those things mattered to me. And and I was also super grateful that they gave Emmett um a full romantic and sexual life, as messy as it was. He absolutely did. And that was something that I very much appreciated about Emmett because he could so have easily been relegated to just, you know, uh, Mikey says a line and Debbie says a line and then you're there to, ha ha, you know, you're the, you're the guy slinging the joke there. But Emmett has a full arc. Emmett is sometimes a bad guy. Emmett is imperfect and flawed and human. But Emmett also, Emmett thinks he's sexy and Mm -hmm. other men find Emmett sexy. And, you know, a lot, a lot of of effeminate men came up to me in that time and said, thank you. Like, you give Nellie Queens a good name. And I was like, good. Nellie Queens deserve a good name. Nellie Queens are awesome. Without Nellie Queens, I don't think the movement would be where it is today, you know? So... Um, yeah, those were all the things that mattered to me. And fortunately, I was very, very lucky that Dan and Ron almost instantly saw what I was doing. During, while we were shooting the pilot, they came mm-hmm. up to me and pulled me aside and said, we didn't think we'd get a real actor for this part. We thought we'd just get a quippy queen and call it a day. But we see you. We see what you're capable of. And we're going to write to that. And they did. To their credit, they did. That's amazing. Uh, so I want to go back and reference something that you you talked about on the first day of shooting uh, that happened. But there was, you know, uh, uh, of of the two that I can think of, gay shows at the time on TV, you guys and Will and Grace, you all actually had sex <laughs> on screen and quite a lot of it. Uh, queer as folks separated itself by explicitly ensuring that audiences knew that queer men had sex. Uh, and there was a big that, part of their lives and a big part of their stories. It wasn't just, I mean, yes, sometimes I do think it was a little sensational. And sometimes we oh, just sure. did a lot of it to be, to the be. The guy in the scuba gear honest. and the. <laughs> you know, I don't even remember that. Was there a guy in a scuba gear? Like, I, like I've, that, yeah. I've, that one I've blocked. But we, um, you know, it was a part of our lives, just like it was a part of my life. Sex was a huge part of my life, still is, you know, who I'm having sex with, who I'm not, you know, all that stuff is, is part of particularly the gay male rituals of dating, mm-hmm. of finding your partner, of fucking up your partner, of fucking up your relationship, all those things. So, Did it feel like, uh, did, did it feel, did the sex part of it feel, oh gosh, you know. Did it feel sensationalized? Did it feel groundbreaking at the time? Or did it just feel like, oh, finally, finally um, we have penises. <laughs> all the above, all the above. I mean, they were, you know, when, when we, when I got um, my contract, so the way TV works 
when you're an actor and you're getting mm-hmm. close to getting a series regular role on a show, you have what's called a screen test and it's your final mm-hmm. audition. Well, before you go into your final audition, you have to sign your contracts because mm-hmm. they don't want you to know that they've chosen you because that puts you <laughs> in a strong negotiating position, right? So they uh-huh. negotiate with all the final people. And when they sent over my final contracts, there was a 20-page nudity writer attached <laughs> that said, basically, you may not have any sex in this pilot, but this is these are the kinds of stories we're telling, and your character will be expected to participate in these stories. And then it had a bunch of sex scenes from the pilot attached. And, and did you immediately I, hit the gym or... <laughs> At that time, I had like 0% body fat. It just naturally, I couldn't put on weight at that age to save my life. So I was like, it is what it is. Um, uh, I, I mean, I did go to the gym and I was going to the gym, but like, and I, and I did stop eating, you know, anything that had flour in it, but that's another story. Um, uh, the But the main thing was my manager who was openly gay and very supportive of my queerness. Like he wasn't at all, um, he wasn't one of those who was like, you know, you have to be in the closet or anything like that. But he called me that day and said, I don't think you should take this job. Really? And, mm-hmm. and I was like, why? And he said, look, um, I, you know, we both know your career is about to happen. Like I had been mm-hmm. so close to so many things, including Jack on Will and Grace and several mm-hmm. and, and, and multiple other shows that, that did or didn't go. Um, and he just said, I'm worried that if I put you on this show and then I want to take you to ABC to, to test for a sitcom, they're going to say, I can't put this guy on ABC. I just saw him getting ass fucked over on Showtime. <laughs> And I thought about it and um, I called my best friend and she pulled some tarot cards and she said, and she, by the way, she was inclined to agree with him. Like just her gut was like, "Hmm, maybe he's right. And then she pulled tarot cards and she just literally laughed. And she was like, I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, you have to do the show. It's going to change your life and it's going to change the world. So you have to do the show. And, uh, and I was like, good, that's what I needed to hear. And, and I basically took the position that like, if this was my last job, it was my last job. And I was contributing to not only entertainment, but to the movement. And I, and I still feel that way. Can I ask what the casting process was like? I mean, what's it like sitting in those rooms, you know, the, the roundups and all of that in the nineties, knowing that like, you know, what roles were you going for? What roles did you try for? What what was it like being in those rooms? And what uh, what were some of the things that you were asked to do? That, you, you mean sort of pre-queers folk, or you mean sure, in terms yeah, of absolutely. Look, I you know i I came to LA at twenty seven, okay. and I had I had I had gone to acting school. I was a classically trained actor. I'd done a bunch of theater in the in the interim, um, and then I came to LA with kind of no credits, um, booked my very first audition, which was just a big guest spot on an NBC sitcom. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and cried for four hours because I felt like it was, it was the universe telling me like, you're meant to be here. There is a place for you in the business, you know, yada, yada. Cause I had left Uh New York with my tail between my legs. Like I failed. There's no place for me. I'm too gay. I'm too ugly. I'm never going to work. But I came to LA and I was making a name for myself as this kind of quirky character actor who, uh-huh. you know, wasn't I wasn't just playing gay roles. Most of them were gay, but but they were just they were mostly quirky. I was playing, you know, bitchy assistants and but also playing like horny horny straight neighbors and um, <laughs> you know, like just and everything from like you're the boss who's too young to telling you what to do to. I don't know, the nervous undertaker. That was my very first job. So, so I, um, 
I went out for a lot of stuff pre-Queer as Folk. After Queer as Folk, though, if, if, if a breakdown didn't say gay in it, I couldn't get in the room. Really? Really. I went through two managers, both of whom were like, well, you're not like Emmett. This should be easy. Like, you, fuck, you're so talented. I expected you to be totally different when you walked into my office. So great. And they, they just said every time they would pitch me to the casting directors and they would say, oh, we're not going gay with this. And they were like, he's not, we're not he, going gay he, with this. He, he, he just like, it, it, it was, you know, to play a DA on Law and Order or something. You know what I mean? It's like, you want, you want to watch somebody, you know, navigate a, a, a fucking closing argument? I can do that. I'm a classical sure. actor. I can scan a Shakespearean sonnet. I can, you know what I mean? Like I can still do Richard II soliloquies. Like I know how to do that stuff. Nobody couldn't get arrested after that for that kind of stuff. If it was a hairdresser or a sassy shoe salesman, by all means, let's get Peter. But I had spent five years playing Emmett and I was just like, I got to do this with depth and nuance and I got to do, you know, great comedy and, and heartbreak and melodrama all in one role. And I don't need to do it for like, you know, I don't need to do it on some, some sitcom. Like it just, it just wasn't interesting to me anymore. And that's a big thing that pushed me to start writing and directing. I want to talk about writing and directing, but before I move away from you in front of the camera, I just have to say there is a TV show that I feel like I made up uh, or that it was made just for me. Uh, and it is called Rick and Steve, the happiest gay couple in all the world. And it I is, love Rick and Steve. that is one of my comfort show. <laughs> I love that show with a fierce passion. And Great. I don't think, I think I am the only human being that's ever, I, who else, where was the, where's the show? <laughs> I don't What's know where it, it is. Netflix? It's so funny. Somebody, somebody, by the way, just hit me up about this yesterday and was like, please do more Rick and Steve. And I was like, I wish I, I would love to. I, I swear mm -hmm. about 10 times a year, I tweet about it. And I'm like, I just, I just, dear, dear God in heaven. Lady, it, I know. Gotta be yeah, by the way, that show, it won the International Festival of Animation. Which I the know. Year before, the year before, like The Simpsons had won, like it was considered the best animated show in in the entire world that year, and we got to do I think sixteen episodes. Is that what there are yeah. two two seasons of eight? Right, two seasons. Yeah, and it ended uh, on a cliffhanger, and I just I need I. <laughs> you need some closure. I just uh, need some closure. <laughs> I understand. I I need Hulu or, or Amazon Prime or Netflix to wheelbarrow you some money. And just I mean, make another. <laughs> I would do it in a heartbeat. By the way, full credit to that show goes to Alan Broca, who mm -hmm. wrote and directed it. He, um, that is entirely him. Like we were and just puppets. wrote and directed <laughs> half of independent queer cinema. <laughs> all of the every everything that has the word eating in it, he he has directed. I love um, all five of the eatings. Don't worry. <laughs> he's and he's such a lovely human and so talented. And I just thought that show was so smart and funny and just completely insanely inappropriate like and it i mean i came off queer as folk but i was doing that i it, mm -hmm. it made me blush and i was like good for you this oh is, man this is... it goes some places and you don't expect that to go there and and it, it's it's you know the lego movie meets the other side of Pornhub. it's great <laughs> it's so true that's very that's very apt what you just said is very apt <laughs> so i'm not here sure, also this, i'm not sure we could make it today I think we get canceled. Well, yeah, pretty. You, I yeah. think a lot of that humor would somebody would would just go be up in arms. There was a, there was a brief period of time in sort of that 
late mid 2000s early 2010s when you could sort of make that irreverent go all the way there comedy and then it was taken as a joke by the people that you know everybody was you know in on the joke with you and we are away from that now it is the truth uh so you created executive produced and show ran a little show called the fosters i did that is true I co-created uh, it with Kathy Bredewig, my writing and producing partner at the time. Uh-huh. Um, and, and a woman named Joanna Johnson came on and, and show ran it with us. The three of us all ran it together. Um, I just want to give them credit so it doesn't sound like I'm taking taking all the all the credit for it. But I'm incredibly and very proud of famously, that. Jennifer Lopez did something with it, just sprinkled some fairy dust on it or something. That's pretty accurate. Yes, she sprinkled <laughs> some fairy dust on it. So... When you were creating The Fosters, how had developing storytelling, uh, how, how had developing stories like that changed since you were, you know, in those rooms about to launch Queer as Folk? You know, um, it was a, it, it felt like a natural extension of queer storytelling. It was like, mm-hmm. you know, what, what there hasn't been, what there hadn't been at that time was a lesbian family drama. Mm-hmm. It just didn't exist. And and when Brad and I sort of realized that, we were like, holy shit, yes. Yes, this is so right. And ABC Family, which, you know, which is what Freeform used to be called, mm-hmm. their tagline was literally a new kind of family. Mm-hmm. And we were like, you want a new kind of family? We got a new kind of family for you. And And it just seemed, it was so obvious that I think sometimes people have missed it. In fact, they told us this story when they were picking up their pilots for that year, deciding which pilots to make. They bought, I think they bought about 40 scripts. They had narrowed it down to 10 and they were going to make three pilots. And everyone in the company reads all the scripts and talks about them and sort of makes their case for everything. And somebody said, well, you know, uh, my favorite script was the Fosters, but I don't know if there's a hook. I don't know if there's an edge. And somebody was like, there's two moms. It's nowhere on television. Trust me, it's a hook. People are going to talk about it, especially in the middle of the country. Like maybe because we live in LA, it's obvious to you, but Mm -hmm. there's plenty of people who have never seen, you know, a lesbian run family before. So trust me, there's a hook. And then somebody in that room apparently said, well, I just want to say, I don't think we should make it. And that's what got it made. That that there was somebody in that room that there was, that they knew that they knew there was going to be controversy. And that that was important, that it was going to be, that that hook was going to be splashy enough. Because everything else about the show was quite traditional and quite conventional. Sure. It was a, it was a traditional family drama about a non-traditional family. That was the whole the whole gag. I love that. I loved that. You know, one of the things that I loved about it, um, actually, you know what? I want to ask, did it uh, give you any sense of irony uh, when that manager that told you that you couldn't get trotted over to ABC and then you sold a show to ABC. Well, it was ABC Family for one thing, so it was it was Disney, but not, sure. not actually. ABC. Um, it it didn't. A he had died since then. So <laughs> I so um so I, and by the way, I loved him. He he is he was in pretty much single handedly responsible for my acting career. So I don't I don't begrudge him that at all. He really was just looking out for me and and you know the best way he he knew how. Um, uh, but, but it was, I mean, it was thrilling to go, yeah, we're going to tell stories focused on, you know, an audience under the age of 18 Mm -hmm. about a family that they may have never seen before. And I think it mattered. I think like Queer as Folk, I think it changed people. I think it opened people's eyes and, um, and 
uh, I still, you know, to this day, I still get thank you tweets about the Fosters. I still get messages from girls watching it with their best friends. And, um, and it's, you know, it's now playing in more countries around the world. And there's still, you know, it, it's still a place that young women, particularly young queer women, feel seen and feel something they might aspire to. I think one of the things that I really liked about it and that felt so authentic to me was that everyone was the correct age, which (laughs) is strange for some reason on a drama about a family to have children the age of their own characters, because oftentimes... They weren't quite. (laughs) Let's be honest. I mean, Hayden was. He was Uh the right age for dude. Um, But if you watch Hayden, like, he grows so much in the first season. It's like... does. It's bananas. Um, and the kid, everybody else, they were, Maya was just, had just turned 18 when we shot the pilot and the twins were just, were 17 when we shot the pilot, mm-hmm. but they turned 18 before. So they were playing, you know, they were playing 15, mm-hmm. Maya was playing 16. They were close to the, to their ages, but they weren't, they weren't. But you there. didn't have the CW thing of 30 year olds playing 16. <laughs> By the way, one of the shows that I almost got right before Queer as Folk was a show about freshmen in college um, called Sagamore. That, and I was up for it. I think I tested for it five times. Uh-huh. And I was fully 30 years old, and it was to play a college freshman. And, and we all remember the illustrious, long, many seasons of the show Sagamore, was it? Sagamore. No, but it never got on the air. Oh, oh yes. We made the pilot, and it didn't go anywhere. But <laughs> that was that. Just so you know, like I, I, was, I was in that soup. I was playing 18. You know, at sure. So yeah, I mean, take the yeah. jobs you can, right? Uh, but so I'm glad that you brought up Jude because uh, Jude holds a very special place in our household. Uh, my husband and I adored Jude. Um, you know, obviously he mirrored a lot of the experiences that we uh, we had as you know growing up. Um, we loved Jude so much that we named our pet Bird after Jude. <laughs> So how did you find the middle ground of showing how young people authentically explore their sexuality without infantilizing him in some kind of way? Because he, he he has a journey. Exactly. You know, it it was interesting. I, you know, my first kid, my first same sex kiss, I was 11. I was younger than he was when Mm -hmm. that happened. And it was important to me. One of the things, you know, one of the things that I think the the movement really needed to look at was because because the the sort of trump card that was played against queer people was you're all pedophiles. Hmm. The movement had, by and large, just just put their hands up and walked away from anyone under eighteen. There were oh, almost absolutely. no social service organizations aimed at queer youth. None. People wouldn't touch it. There were maybe a few in some of the major cities. That was it. And, and that, it just struck me as so wrong. And I, one of the things, and by the way, when we did that story, I got called, it was, I got a bigger, we got a bigger reaction to Jude's first kiss, which was as chaste as this. Oh gosh, I mean, yeah. yeah. We got a bigger reaction to that than to anything on Queer as Folk. And I mean that. Really? We, I, got called, I got called a pedophile. I got called a pervert. I got called everything that's wrong with this country, and I got and gay people came for me. I Why are you that. doing this? Why are you doing this? Why are you putting this on the air? You're making us look bad. And I was like, we have got to stop pretending that gay adults, that queer adults, don't start out as queer kids. We have to stop. We're not helping anybody, including ourselves. So, um, 
So, and I think so uh, many people forget that. I mean, regardless of sexuality, we all started off as children with flirtations and first kisses and first times. And if a lot of us are really honest with ourselves, some of those firsts happened a lot younger than we probably tell other people that they happened. And yet, statistically speaking, you know, early childhood sexuality you began dabbling around that age, nine, but 10, like, 11 years old. The thing I used to say during that whole conversation was like, did you ever watch My Girl? Like, mm -hmm. you know, Macaulay Culkin and Anna Klumski are 10 and they mm -hmm. share a kiss, you know, they share a kiss in that and nobody was up in arms about that. Mm -hmm. It was the emotional kind of highlight of that movie. So it, it's, it's this notion that, that gay sexuality is so fundamentally wrong mm -hmm. that kids aren't allowed to engage with it at, at, at age-appropriate developmental levels. Do you know what I mean? That, that, it, that is, I think we do terrible, terrible damage. And I think it's one of the reasons that queer people find themselves in these late, very late adolescences. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Stuck in, stuck in adolescence into their 30s, 40s, 50s. I'm really glad you can't see all the Disney memorabilia on my uh, on my shelves on the other side of the room because I felt very attacked just then. <laughs> I don't mean that we're all no. allowed to you know, we're all allowed to have our things, but I just mean that like you know you know gay men partying at clubs into into your fifties like you're still sure. in our adolescence because you didn't get to have one you know Absolutely. when you were when you were that age. So um, I just think it's it's something we as a community need to continue. To take on. So you did, I mean, you have gone on to to write, to direct, to executive produce. Um, you, last year, uh, notably, you uh, launched the romantic comedy, The Thing About Harry, which we loved in this house. Uh, you know, I remember a time when uh, gay comedies were, you know, whatever two guys are willing to kiss and that you found at a bus stop and it was filmed on a potato and it was, you know, <laughs> I, I remember... <laughs> I remember the early days of queer romantic comedies. and Filmed on a potato is going to stay with me because that's hilarious and true. Wildly true. You know, uh, it, it was. But, um, that was to have a, the big, you know, to have the Disney company's blessing and to be able to make that movie, uh, you know, with a real budget and, and with, real, with real actors who, whom I adored and thought were so brilliant um, was such a privilege. It was so, 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 so fun. But it's it's so uh, impactful, I think, to so many people because, you know, romantic comedies created by and for queer audience are starting to become not just mainstream, but a regular part of annual television and film releases. Did it get easier? Was it easier to make this movie now or was it easier to make it because you've had success in the past and you've, you've had a history of success um, or... It, you know, sure, it's always a little bit easier because mm -hmm. people trust you. And by the way, I made it for Freeform, who I had mm -hmm. been running a TV show for, sure. you know, five years at that point. So it wasn't, um, so they, so I was a known commodity to them. And um, uh, so, yeah, but, but that being said, still wasn't easy. It still, it still was a lot of hoops to jump through and months and months and months of, yeah, we're probably going to make it, but we're not sure. You know, I know I, I was told on the on the QT that like right before they greenlit that movie, they made the um, executives do a big wide search uh, to read basically every other Valentine's Day script they could find just to make sure they weren't missing anything. Like it's so nothing in Hollywood is ever just easy, frankly, mm -hmm. even even for the super producers, you know, even for super producers, 
I, I was talking to a friend who was a big, big executive at one of the streamers. And he just said, he said, look, about one in four things at this point goes mm-hmm. beyond development. And I was like, well, not from like, you know, the big, the big ones, the Ryans, the Shondas, the Greggs. And he was like, mm, sure. even from them, even from them. So, you know, we all forget because it's all about perception, but, um, but it's always, it, Hollywood is, you know, is still uh, a, a bit of a, a bit of a casino. Is it easier to get queer joy on screen? Uh, it, or is tragedy still the most palatable storyline for for studios? I don't, I don't experience that. I have to say, I, I never have that. That, that um, you know, not in the last decade or so. I have, it's not like people you know came to me and were like, "Well, the thing about Harry needs a sad ending." Or something like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, that was never the, the thing uh, about Harry is he was dead the whole time. Ah. <laughs> exactly. Ah, it's a, gotcha. Um, uh, He's yeah. A ghost. So, uh, so yeah, I, I do think there's room for um, for queer for queer joy, um, and um, more than ever, more than ever. I mean, you know, there's still a lot more room for queerness, you know, on all the platforms and on the broadcast networks and in feature films, like for sure. Mm-hmm. But you certainly feel that, you know, uh, your generation and below are just like, you know, I read some report that like over 50% of high school kids now identify as something other than straight. Mm-hmm. You know, back in my day, it was 4% and you were gay or straight and that was it. I was, was no- the gay kid in my town of 585 people. I was Emmett Honeycutt, my dear. There you go. Nine Baptist churches. It was a great time. Such fun. Right. So, and I know, and I'm not naive to the fact that like in your, in your town of 585 people, it's probably still really hard to be a queer person. Oh yeah. But, but at least there's, there are networks and communities and images and there's stuff out there that you can find you know there's social media there's youtube there's movies there's the thing about harry there's all sorts of of media out there now for people but i do actually want to talk about that because it's it it does lead me to talk about seeing ourselves on screen and Mm -hmm. seeing ourselves centered in stories um and seeing ourselves centered authentically in stories uh so I want to talk about casting for a moment. There's been a growing conversation in recent years that that points out that many queer roles are not played by queer actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, most of the Oscar-winning queer roles have been played by cisgender heterosexual people from Brokeback Mountain to Love, Simon and its TV spinoff, Love, Victor. All of the leading queer people in question are played by cishet actors. Jared Leto got, you know, an Oscar for playing a trans woman and, and so on and so forth. There's two schools of thought, of course, you know, one, you get the right actor for the right role. Uh, and of course, the other is that uh, it's some kind of queer face akin to black or brown face or something like that. Where do you personally, uh, maybe not as Mr. Producer, don't want to make any headlines or any gotcha moments or anything, but where do you no. personally fall in that that line of thought? So, look, I... It's, it's a very nuanced, difficult conversation. I am yeah. largely of the latter school. I am, I am largely done with straight men mincing and lisping and running around and, and calling that queerness. Because I, don't, I think more times than not, it, it, it is, it's something put on as opposed to something lived and experienced. Mm-hmm. And, and you and I both know that, that a childhood of femininity 
is is a particular experience of shame, of joy, of connection, of seeing the world a particular way that shapes kind of everything and every every facet of who you become. And I think that often gets left behind. That is not to say there are not some beautiful, glorious, nuanced performances by straight men playing queer characters. That is not to say that that is not true because it is true. There are, there are of course. Ones. But I, but I'm really I'm really done with like oh 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 my god he was amazing you know like just because he was you know lisping I, I just I, I kind of can't can't stand it anymore and getting credit for a wonderful performance to, you know oh gosh it's such an acting stretch you know <laughs> such an acting exactly. stretch to kiss a guy oh let's give him an Oscar <laughs> exactly and I'm really really ready for queer people playing queer roles to get celebrated too which just doesn't happen very often. When a, when a straight guy plays it, it's, oh, what a stretch. Amazing. So transformational. When a gay guy does it, it's like, oh, yeah, well, I just thought that's who he was. You know what I mean? And it's, it's just not, um, not, not fair and not true. And, um, you know, it, it, it still takes incredible vulnerability and skill to embody any humanity on screen. Absolutely. Um, and and the thing is, the, you bring up, I mean, you know, the way that you talked about de- developing Jude as a character, but even the way that you talked about developing Emmett as a character and the fact that, you know, you were able to bring nuance to these roles. You know, you put a, a straight actor in some of those roles or somebody that doesn't have that lived experience and it, it can very easily become something else, something false, something inauthentic. And that can be kind of harmful at times, frankly. hundred uh, percent. I mean, I think, I, I think, it was, I, I, was it Tracy Lissette? I'm not sure it was, or Jenny Bowen, like who talks about trans, the trans mm-hmm. experience, right? In Disclosure, I think it's Jenny yep. who talks about how, how, you know, part of the danger for trans people in this world is that they see these roles that straight cis men put on and take off. Mm-hmm. And that, that that there is this kind of culturally accepted idea that transness is something you can put on like a costume. And therefore, it is stealthy. Therefore, it is uh, a choice. Therefore, it is um, being wielded like a weapon, like, like they're spies or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And that that contributes to the culture of violence against, against trans women in particular. And I think that that's really valid. Um, another great example, just a, sort of a more positive example that I want to talk about is like, I've seen Angels in America maybe, I don't know, 10 times. And the last production that, um, that came out of the National Theater in London that Andrew Garfield and Nathan Lane did. Mm-hmm. Nathan Lane played Roy Cohn. I've seen Al Pacino play Roy Cohn. I've seen Larry Pine play him, Ron Liebman. I've seen many, many great actors take on that role and they were all great. Nathan Lane was blew my mind. He was hands Mm -hmm. down the best Roy Cohn I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And it's because his Roy Cohn was rooted in shame. His Mm -hmm. Roy Cohn was rooted in rage, in the rage at not being the kind of man that the world told him he was supposed to be. And that nuance, that difference allowed me to relate to him. He wasn't just this bombastic monster that he often is in productions of those plays. And I, I just, um, so that to me is the, the gift that's there if you're willing to do the extra work and try to find queer artists to play queer roles. 
you're somebody that now makes rooms where things happen. Uh, you, you cast people, you, you know, you make some of these rooms and, and uh, find these actors. How do you go about casting people? How does the industry go about casting people? I mean, like you said, it's a, this is such a nuanced conversation. I mean, you obviously, I mean, you probably don't go into a casting room and say, who do you sleep with? You know, obviously not. You can't, you can't. it's right. illegal. You're not allowed. Of You're course. So it's a really, really, really tricky thing. And it's also a thing that's changing. You know, mm -hmm. one, one challenge that you come up against when you're looking for queer actors, by the way, the thing about Harry, Jake Borelli, openly gay, Nico Taro is straight. Um, I loved Nico's performance and he, um, to his credit, never for one second put anything between him and Harry. He literally, all he did was just go like, oh, I just opened my heart to both genders, like to all genders. Like it just... Just, that's all I have to do. Just open it up. There's no difference between me and this guy, except that I, I that I am fully sexualized, to, you know, to, to any and all body parts, basically. And it was such a beautiful, fearless way to throw himself in. So, so again, I, you know, as I said, there's plenty of examples of, of good cishet actors playing queer roles that, that I think are wonderful. We looked high and low for queer. I wanted to cast only queer actors. But, but we ran out of time and, you know, and I mean, Nico was fantastic and we knew he was fantastic, but we ran out of time. We, I had to go start shooting a movie. So I didn't, you know, there, I had Jake, I knew I had, one of them was openly queer. So that was something, you know, and, and, um, and Jake was also just phenomenal. Um, uh, but it, but it's, it is not easy. And when you, when you're trying to cast queer actors, the simple, like I'm, I'm casting 30 year olds basically, right? They, they're they're to play 20, but the actors are in their late 20s, early 30s. Or I think they were both mid 20s, late 20s. But so I'm seeing everybody from 20 to 30, right? Well, a lot of those actors that I'm seeing for leads in a movie, mm -hmm. um, the the straight actors have been working since they were 12. They've played boyfriends and best friends and jocks and bullies and student council presidents and 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 and. and. So they come in completely, um, completely ready for the experience of being on camera in every frame of a film. They've worked it up. Acting on camera is hard and it's not something you can learn how to do in a classroom. You need to learn how to do it by doing it. And then the queer actors would come in and they would have played like the queer best friend in one episode of something. Or they would have had like three lines as like the funny, the funny student council president, you know, who's uptight and queer on a Disney channel thing. But like, like they just don't have the breadth of experience because they haven't been given the breadth of opportunities. So it's, it's a problem. And, you know, I think a lot of marginalized communities are looking at this in every facet of the, of the business. It's like, you have to hire women directors. You have to hire black directors. Well, great, but they're not being supported and trained to succeed. So it, so you have to like, it, it's a pipeline problem. You got to go all the way back and change the way that you're thinking about the entire process. And that's big systemic change. Did you relate to that after having been one of the only queer people on a set, you know, like Queer as Folk, in which you're one of the only queer of people there? Of course, of course I do. You know, and I... I relate to it in that, you know, my um, people I went to acting school with, people who I know I'm every bit as talented as, worked a lot more than I did up until Emmett. 
You know what I mean? Like it was, it's a little, my agent, when I booked Queer as Folk, he called me up and said, congratulations, you like, you hit a hole in one. Like you, you, you pulled off a miracle, you know? And he was basically, he basically said, and you didn't do it by just being the hottest guy from your hometown. And I wow. basically called me and I was like, okay, thanks. Um, thanks. I appreciate that, Mary. But, um, but, but my point is, uh, yeah, yes, I, yes, I do understand all of that. Queer as Folk is getting a revival. Is Emmett coming back? No, they, they have completely, it's a new city. It's a whole new cast. They've distanced themselves from us entirely. Um, makes me, it makes me sad if I'm being really, really honest. I want, I want nothing but success for them. I really, really hope it's fantastic and they do fantastically well. Um, but I'm sad that, that it's getting a reboot that, that none of us get to be a part of. Cause I'm, I love Emmett and I miss Emmett and I'd love to, I'd love to put on some leather pants again and see what happens. I would love that too. Peter Page, thank you so much for being here. I know you have to go. I appreciate all of your time. You have a good rest of your night. Thank you so much. Well, rioters, that is going to do it here for us today. My eternal thanks to Peter Page for sharing a bit of his very busy schedule with me to have this interview about a lot of really important topics. Uh, Go check out what Peter Page is doing. Uh, Links to where you can find him are in the show notes. If you like this show and you'd like to support it, there are a number of ways to help. Please consider liking and sharing the show on social media. Telling your friends about what you listen to is the number one way to help this show find new listeners. You can also rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Help keep the show free and producing on a regular basis by chipping in whatever you can. You could buy me a coffee, which is a one-time donation of your choosing, or join my Patreon for as little as a dollar a month or whatever you can on a monthly basis. Patrons receive additional audio and video content, as well as archived episodes, a private Discord server, and monthly chats with special guests. Uh, If you are a Patreon supporter, you will have noticed a couple of things. One, the uh, much (laughs) much discussed werewolf episode where I interviewed a uh, real live self-reported werewolf um, was put up as a bit of a special holiday treat in the feed Uh, and also you will have uh, gotten an invite to this Friday December 17th 2021's uh, roundtable it is the year end roundtable where we are just going to get together all levels are invited not just the roundtable tier uh, and we are going to burn 2020 to the ground I cannot wait Uh, if you would like to join my Patreon you can do so at patreon.com slash inciting a riot. Do please consider ordering my book, The Dabbler's Guide to Witchcraft, which is available everywhere books are sold. Show notes are at incitingariot.com. And of course, if you'd like to email me about this episode or any other, I'm at firelight, that's F-I-R-E-L-Y-T-E at incitingariot.com. Uh, you can connect with me on social media. I am at Inciting a Riot on uh, most forms of social media, and those are growing. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, TikTok, all at Inciting a Riot, and now Vero, V-E-R-O. Uh, it's a uh, young platform that many of us are moving to uh, to try to, to support, mostly because uh, they will verify occult authors. Um, folks like me uh, have a little bit better of a chance 
of you all seeing us. There is a chronological feed. There are no ads. There's no weird algorithm. It's just, it's sort of like rediscovering Instagram like five years ago. So <laughs> uh, you can uh, find links to that in the show notes as well if you'd like to join me over on Vero. Um, anyways, thank you all so much for downloading the show. Thank you once again to Peter Page. I'm going to leave you, but as always, I will leave you with love and light, firelight. <laughs>